This message is brought to you by Moira Pentecostal Church. We hope that it will encourage, challenge, and develop you into the person God has made you to be. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13 onwards. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am the Son of Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Not that Peter was the rock he was going to build his church on, but the revelation that Peter had that he was the Christ. And I say unto you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or Hades, shall not prevail against it. God has a vested interest in His church. It is His church. It's blood-bought, blood-washed. It is His Son's bride. It is Christ's body on earth. It is the family of God. The church was in the mind of God from eternity past. Before the very foundation of the world, God always had it in mind that he would have his church. The church is going to have a glorious future. Paul said that the world is waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. The church right now is entering into its greatest moment since it was born. Why? Because the world is at a crossroads. And God has got a message for this world. And the only message or the only way it's going to come to this world is through His church. Now, when the world stops listening to God's message, that's when the world really is in trouble. And it's in great trouble today because in great swathes of this world, it has stopped listening to the church. And that's God's message that comes through His church. But let's first of all define what we mean by the church. The church is not a denomination. The church is not an institution. The church is not an organization. In the language of the New Testament, the word for church is ecclesia. Ecclesia. And it comes from two words. Ek, E-K, which means out or out of. And klesis, which means a calling. So when you put the two together, it is a calling out or called out once. And whenever it was used in Bible days, uh, particularly in the days of Christ, the days of Paul, uh, it was used in a secular sense. Uh, Paul is the one who uses it the most, and he particularly used it regarding the church. But it was used in a secular sense. Uh, as a body of citizens that were gathered together to discuss the affairs of the state. That a select body of citizens 
they'll be gathered out together to discuss the affairs of the state. In Acts chapter 19, the Apostle Paul at Ephesus uh, was teaching, as he did all over Asia Minor, uh, in part of his teaching, he would, because it was a pagan society that was full of idols and altars, and he would say, these are the works of men's hands. These are not God. And they're not gods. And they can do nothing for you. They're stone. They're made of brass and bronze. And of course, those who made these statues didn't like that because it would hurt their business. And Demetrius, the silversmith in Ephesus, absolutely despised Paul. And he went around all of the tradesmen that would make all of these idols onto Diana, the great Diana of the Ephesians. There's a massive temple there where they worship Diana. And of course, he stirred up all of the tradesmen. And there was a great uproar in the city. And they brought them to uh, a great amphitheater. Anybody who's ever visited Ephesus, you've seen that amphitheater. And there was such an uproar there that they cried out for the space of two hours, great as Diana of the Ephesians. And the, the scriptures call this an assembly, an ecclesia. These people were called out and they came out of the city and they gathered together, even though it was for a wrong purpose, but nonetheless, they were called out, it was called out. And uh, in fact, three times in that particular section of chapter 19, uh, they were called uh, an assembly and a lawful assembly, actually. One of the magistrates came and said that we could be in trouble for doing this with the Roman authorities. And uh, there is a lawful assembly for all of these things. There's pro-councils and all the rest of it. So that gives us a flavor of what this word means. It's also used in Israel, uh, of Israel in the wilderness in Acts chapter 7, verse 38. Uh, Stephen, remember the first martyr. And in his address uh, to those who were accusing him, he talks about Israel and he calls them the congregation in the wilderness or the assembly in the wilderness, or actually the church in the wilderness, the ecclesia, the called out ones. Uh, and so, just as Israel was the called out ones, they were called out of Egypt. And they gathered together as they went through the wilderness. They were the called out assembly, or the ecclesia. And just as Israel was called out of Egypt, and became, as it were, the church in the wilderness. So we are the called out ones. We are the ecclesia today. And we have been called out of this world, which is, and the Bible is often represented by Egypt. And we have been called out of this world and called on to Christ. We've been called out of death unto life. We've been called out of darkness unto life. We've been called out of this world unto the kingdom of God. So we're the called out ones today. We are the ecclesia. The term the church is used basically in two ways. First of all is the term to describe the whole company of the redeemed all through the present era. In Ephesians 1, uh, Paul talks about the church, which is his body, his body on earth. And so whenever we talk about the church, we're talking about all of the redeemed of the Lord on the face of the earth today. That's the first way. The second way we talk about the church is it's a company exclusively consisting of professed believers with reference to the place in which they are accustomed to meet together. Now, there is the 
church, the Bible talks about the church in Corinth or the church in Thessalonica or the church in Galatia or the church in Rome, referring to that body of believers who meet within that geographical area or that district or that particular home where they meet. There was the church uh, at Philemon's home. Philemon was a Christian businessman and there was a church at him, his home. There was a church uh, in Laodicea, and there's a group who met in Nympha's home in Laodicea in Colossians 4. Uh, there is the church in Moira, and the church in Moira consists of all of the believers that live and worship within this town of Moira. Now, it just so happens that we worship in different buildings on Sunday. But there is only one church, the church of the firstborn. But the church that meets here is known as MPC, Moira Pentecostal Church. We identify ourselves by that. Never in the Bible, by the way, is bricks and mortar called the church. You're the church, this is where we meet. But of course, humanly speaking then, we call this the church on Main Street or the church up on the hill or the church up the road there. And we know what we mean by that, exactly what we mean by that. And so the church then is used as the whole company of the redeemed body of Christ all over the world, and then it's used where it is geographically located and, and often in different buildings or in maybe people's homes, whatever. So that is the church. And in Matthew 16, Jesus referring to the church, he makes a remarkable statement it's a declaration, it's a promise, it's a prophecy, it's a confession of faith. It gives us hope, it will increase our faith, it will make us stronger in the Lord. And it is simply this, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What a promise, what a prophecy, what a declaration. What a thing to remind us, to encourage us, to strengthen us that the gates of hell will never, ever prevail against us. Aren't you glad for that today? And what are gates? City gates in the Bible was a place of authority, a place of power, a place of rulership, a place of control. It's a place where the elders would, of the city would meet and they would discuss the affairs of the city. They were the ruling authorities and they would meet at the gate of the city. And so gates stand for authority, for rulership, for control. What about the gates of hell? Those are the strongholds, the power bases of hell. Those areas where Satan governs and controls and he plots and he plans against the church. Now there is no question that there are areas geographically around this world where Satan's power and his presence is felt much more keenly than other places. There's places actually where he is worshipped. There's places that his idols. There are places that are, are centers for worship on the things that are devilish and demonic. There's no question that in those areas, then he has power bases, he's got strongholds. And it has always been that way. Come with me, please, just for a moment to Revelation chapter 2. 
Uh, Jesus uh, speaking to the seven churches. And in Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, he speaks to the church in Pergamos. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Some of your uh, versions may say where Satan's seat is. The word thronos, which means throne. Where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now Pergamos or Pergamon or Bergama as it now is called in Turkey was a place obviously in John's day uh, where Satan had a center of worship. In fact, by this time, the Babylonian worship had transferred to here, to Pergamum or Pergamos, and it was controlled here and centered here. In fact, there was a great altar built, the altar of Zeus. It was a massive construction, some 40 feet high and some 100 uh, meters square. Massive construction with great steps leading up to it. Uh, and most believe that this is what this is referring to, the seat of Satan, the throne of Satan, uh, symbolized by this great altar of Zeus. Now, in the 1800s, 1864, I think it was, a German engineer was visiting in that area. And he was interested in artifacts and, uh, and things like that. And he was shocked to find that the local people, remember, by this time in the 1800s, this was just ruins. And he was shocked to find the local people were taking great slabs of marble and taking them home with them and building sheds and all the rest of it. And he was so shocked, he went to the authorities and said, look, they're destroying these artifacts. Can I please have some of these and take back to Germany? And they said, go ahead, take whatever you want. They didn't care then. And so he spotted the altar of Zeus and he deconstructed it and then he reconstructed it in Germany. In fact, they built a special museum for it, uh, the Museum of Pergamum in, in Berlin. And he reconstructed it there. And then in the 1930s, early 1930s, Albert Speer, who was the architect of the Nazi party, he was sent out by Hitler to design a great rallying point in Nuremberg for his rallies that he was going to hold to organize and to whip up the Nazi party. In fact, they became so successful in the end, there was a million people would come to these rallies. And they'd be held at night time. And people would come with torches. Can you imagine that? And they built this massive big stadium-like area. And Albert Speer, when he heard about and went to see the altar of Zeus in this museum, he got the idea that he would build a replica right there in Nuremberg. And, 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 and in the place where the would have been in Pergamon, there would have been a, a, a bronze bull. He actually made a podium for Hitler to stand on. And of course, it had these great steps. And what they would do is they would surround this whole area by 150 searchlights all going up miles up into the sky. And they called it the Cathedral of Light. Imagine what a misnomer that was. It was full of darkness, really. 
And uh, can you imagine a million people come with torches and all these big searchlights going up? And then Hitler would walk down the stairs. In fact, the steps. In fact, they made a, a documentary which was very successful in Germany. They, they, apparently, they showed it for 12 years in a row. And in the documentary, they had Hitler actually coming out of the sky, as it were, like a Greek god. And he came in that altar, in that podium where he stood, representing the altar of Zeus, is where he made those stirring speeches that you'll see in the old newsreels, and where he stirred up hatred, particularly against the Jewish people. And it was in that very place where he first publicly announced the final solution for the Jews. And we know what the final solution was. It ended up with the Holocaust. And interestingly, the word Holocaust in the Greek, where it came from, the Greek word that it came from, means a whole burnt animal sacrifice. Antipas, my faithful martyr who was killed, where Satan's seat is, some historians say that he was burned on the altar of Zeus as a burnt offering. And here Hitler, a couple of millenniums later, on a replica of the altar of Zeus, he's announcing the Holocaust. And six million Jews were gassed and burned during the Holocaust. When you look at those documentaries of Hitler standing in Nuremberg, there is no question in your mind that he was a man possessed. Even Albert Speer and people like that, his henchmen, said that something took, over, took him over when he stood up there. He was a different man. And he had such authority and such power and such an ability to sway a million people that he healed them as a God, as a savior of the nation. And so there's no question that there are areas where Satan's seat dwells. But, but, they shall not prevail against the church. In the end, although he slew six million Jews, he couldn't prevail against the Jewish nation and against the Jewish people. They're as strong today as ever they were. And he's not going to prevail against the church. 1 John 5, 4 for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Why? Because John 16, In the world, Jesus said, you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. For why? For I have overcome the world. Hallelujah. And then John, 1 John 4, 4, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In Judges 16, Samson went into the city of Gaza. And when he was in the city of Gaza, people recognized him. And so they decided they would ambush him and they would kill him. And they let the gates and they said, let it be till the morning. Because they were reckoning by that time he was with a prostitute all night and he'd probably be drunk. So we'll get him when he's at his weakest in the morning. 
The trouble was when the morning came, Samson was at his strongest. And he got up that morning and the Bible says he went out and he got the very gates of Gaza, these massive, great, big bronze gates and he pulled them out of the ground, post and all, and he put them on his shoulders and he walked up to the top of the hill of Hebron. <laughs> the gates of Gaza could not prevail against him and the gates of hell shall not prevail against the people of God. Amen. What are the gates of hell? They're barriers. They're defense lines of hell. They're hindrances. They're signs that say, thus far and no further shall you go. See, the devil wants to put limits on us. He wants to hinder us. He wants to stop us in our onward journey in Christ. And he tries to find all kinds of gates to stop us doing that. But he shall not prevail against us. In Isaiah 28, 5 and 6, In that day the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people for a spirit of justice to him who turned back the battle at the gate. Glory to God. Genesis 22, God said to Abraham, with blessings I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. Your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. What does that mean to us spiritually? Look at Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessings of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in the manner of man that is only of a man's covenant, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto seeds as of many, but as of one, unto your seed, who is Christ. Now, the very last verse of chapter 3 says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And one of the promises is that we shall possess the gates of our enemy. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. All kinds of gates of opposition to come against us. In Daniel chapter 10, Daniel had a dream, a vision. He was finding it very difficult to understand it. And he prayed much about it. And God sends a mighty angel to give him the answer. Verse 10 of Daniel 10 says, Suddenly a hand touched me and made me to tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hand. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright for I have now been sent to you. And while he was yet speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. And he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, 
For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. From the very moment you prayed that prayer, God heard, and he sent me to give you the answer. But that was 21 days ago. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone with the kings of Persia. And simply what that means is that Gabriel, who's the messenger angel, had come with the answer of the vision. But those princes of Egypt, those kings, sorry, of Persia, those kings of Persia and princes of Persia, those great spirit demonic forces in that area that Gabriel came alone to get through them to go to Daniel. But he was opposed and held up for 21 days and he had to send for Michael who's the warring angel. And he came and he smashed away through after 21 days. That lets us know a little bit about the gates of hell that there is real opposition out there, up there in the spirit world. And oftentimes we're praying and we're seeking God and we're looking for answers. And oftentimes we don't realize that there's an opposition to that. There's an evil one who doesn't want that prayer answered and doesn't want us to understand and doesn't want us to have revelation of what God's doing. And he tries to prevent it. But... Let's keep praying. Let's keep seeking the Lord. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You remember in Acts 12 how Peter, how he was held captive by 16 soldiers, four at a time in shifts, and how he was chained, and a great angel came and slapped him, knocked those chains off, and says, get out of here. And of course, he thought he was in a dream. And as he was walking out, he came to a great iron gate. The Bible says, it opened of its own accord. There was a supernatural opening of the gate. I don't know if you ever read The Heavenly Man, Brother Yun's book. Some of you have read it. I heard him in person giving his testimony in Belfast one time and he said that many times he was imprisoned and beat up and put away and all the rest of it and beat up by other prisoners as well as the guards. And he says one time God took him out of the prison he actually walked right out, right past the guards, right out to the front door, right out to the gate, and right out past the guards of the gate, right out into the street. And he says, not one of them even seen him. That was supernatural, wasn't it? That was like Peter walking out, and the gate was opening of its own accord. If you haven't got that book, by the way, you should try to find it. The Heavenly Man, it's called. It's a very interesting book. There's all kinds of gates, isn't there? The gates of sickness, gates of financial reversal, gates of oppression, all kinds of hurdles and hindrances and things that try to stop us. So what do we do? We use our faith, don't we? Boxer uses his fists, a runner uses his legs, a footballer uses his feet, and God has given us faith. The ability to trust and believe and have confidence in God. 
That's what it is. The ability to trust, to believe, to have confidence in God. And there's nothing pleases God more than faith. In fact, without faith, it is impossible to please God. He that comes to God must believe that he is, that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And even the simplest of faith pleases God. We can't see God. Oftentimes we don't feel God in our emotions, our senses. But we believe in God. And that faith that trusts him and believes it, that pleases Almighty God. Remember Jesus said to his disciples about those who would believe in him that had never seen him, how blessed they would be. That's us, isn't it? We use our faith, our confidence, our belief in the greater one. 1 John 5, 4 and 5, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That simple belief that Jesus is the Son of God, that can help you overcome this world. So we use our faith, and we use the Word of God. John says in his first epistle, the second chapter, his 14th verse, he says, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. How? Because the word of God abides in you. Read the word of God. Feed yourself the word of God. Let the word of God Dwell in you richly, the Bible says. Then when the evil one comes, when those gates, you come to those gates, you'll have the word of God and you'll have your faith to smash through and to get victory. We're going to close Revelation chapter 12. Just this one verse. <clears throat> verse 11. And they overcame him, that old dragon, the devil. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives even unto death. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, speaks of a cross. Thank God for the cross today. The cross gives us the victory again and again. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Thank God for confession. Our testimony, our confession of our faith. It's great to have a testimony. Your testimony can be very, very effective. And they loved not their lives even unto the death. That's a commitment, isn't it? That's a commitment. Even if I have to die for you, was their attitude. I will never, ever give up or give in. <laughs> and they became great martyrs for Christ. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives 
to the death. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen. Lord, we thank you for the victory that you won on Calvary. We thank you that that signed the death warrant of Satan. And the death warrant has been signed. And the execution date has been set. And it's only a matter of time before that day comes. So we thank you, Lord. The battle has been fought and won by a victorious Christ. And Lord, we joy and we rejoice in that victory today because his victory is our victory. He overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Thank you for the cross, Lord, that gave us that victory in Jesus' name. So we bless you today. We thank you for life that is in Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. For more teaching resources, visit www.mpc.org.uk. Thank you.